Perhaps the most infamous quote from the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche is this. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. Friedrich Nietzsche wrote that blasphemous statement in 1882, quite a long time ago actually, and he wrote it after the Enlightenment, the so-called Enlightenment. And he perceived that people were coming to the conclusion that atheism and all of its claims were true and that that civilization was moving away from the Christian belief in God, and as a result, he expected that Western civilization, its, its morals, its worldview, its values, and all the societal norms built upon belief in God, that these things would unravel. And though we are quick, rightly so, to deny such a statement. Sometimes I think Christians, we can panic as if it were true, or run around in a frenzy as if God had been defeated somehow in our nation, or in our family, or in our culture, in Western civilization, that He had been toppled and requires our assistance to to help him back to his feet. That the Lord of hosts is somehow in need of our help as his people to set him right again. And if Nietzsche's statement is blasphemous, such a reaction from the church is, is idolatrous. See, the God of Israel is the Lord of all. We must bow to Him. We must confess His Lordship. As we'll see in 1 Samuel chapter 5, those who do not bow are broken. Those who do not confess now will cry out on the day of His wrath. See, by the end of chapter 4 in 1 Samuel, the nation of Israel had lost so much of what they held dear. They lost tens of thousands of men in battle. They lost the priestly family that they had known for decades and, and the judge, Eli, whose sons served as the priests there, they lost them, all three of them, in one single day. And most tragic of all, they lost the Ark of the Covenant in battle to the Philistines. It had been captured. It had been taken from them. And they say, the glory has departed from Israel. What they failed to call to mind is that the Lord's throne is in heaven, established on high. And I think in 1 Samuel 5, this is what we're going to see. This is the message 
I believe God is revealing to us in 1 Samuel chapter 5, this is it. The God of Israel is Lord of all. Bow to Him or be broken. Confess now or cry out on the day of His wrath. A heavy message and yet a message which shows forth the glory of our triune God, the God of Israel, whom we know to be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 5 today in, uh, in really three parts, or you might even say two parts. Let's, let's work through these verses as the story goes, as the narrative goes on, I'm going to read more and more verses for us. We'll work our way toward the end. Truly, though, this story about the ark, it doesn't really end until chapter 7, verse 2. And we'll consider the latter portion of what goes on with the ark next week in the evening. Let's start by looking at the first few verses here. In the first five verses, we see a defeated deity. A defeated deity. 1 Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Just a, a couple details to, to get straight here. The Philistines, of course, were a nation that were foes to Israel. They were one of the nations, one of the peoples that remained to be conquered after the book of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, the Lord tells them that they still need to drive out the Philistines, that, that those folks uh, are, are their enemies and need to be driven out from the promised land. And he names um, the Lord names five cities of the Philistines. Some people call Philistia uh, a pent, pentapolis. It's basically a nation state with five major cities that make up the nation. We'll see three of those five cities in our, in our passage today. And so the Philistines in battle in the promised land they actually win. And this is the shock to the Israelites because God had told them to drive out the Philistines. But the reason, of course, that they were not able to do so in battle is because they were engaged in sin themselves. The whole priestly office had been made a mockery of and a sacrificial system with it. Rampant sin was going on in Israel. There is a de deterioration of the true worship of, of the Lord. And so the Lord handed them over to judgment in battle. The Ark of the Covenant was lost. And so the Philistines, they take the Ark of the Covenant from that battle there in Ebenezer and they bring it back to one of their cities, which is Ashdod. And it says they bring it into the house of Dagon. Now to be clear, Dagon is not some man. It's, he's not some king of the Philistines or something, Dagon is the Philistines' god. One of their gods, at least. 
whom they worshipped, and Dagon, in their thinking, in the thinking of others in the, the ancient Near East, different people, different nations also worshipped Dagon. He was really at the head of the pantheon, like the chief of their deities. And they take the ark of God, the ark of Yahweh, and they bring it into Dagon's temple. And where this idol is set up, this false deity, they put the ark of God, the ark of the Lord, beside this statue, whatever it would look like, of Dagon that they worshipped. And here's likely the, the thinking. They believe Dagon, their deity, defeated Yahweh, the God of Israel. They believe that their God, Dagon, was stronger than the Lord. And that's why they won. And so they have taken the Lord as captive. They have taken him as, if you will, a prisoner of war. And they have brought him into the temple of Dagon as if to be um, his friend or perhaps even his servant. Whether they see him as an equal, I, I think less then that is what they perceive the Lord as because they've won in battle. Likely they see Yahweh as subservient to Dagon and put, him, put the ark of the Lord there beside the statue of Dagon as if to be his attendant. Absolutely idolatrous. And to make sure that we, again, understand the significance of the Ark of the Covenant, might I remind you, the Ark of the Covenant is, well, an Ark is really like a chest, a box, it's made of gold, and inside the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets of the Covenant, the stone tablets, the covenant which the Lord made with Israel when he revealed himself to them at Sinai. And in there as well was the staff of Aaron and the jar of manna. And the Ark of the Covenant would be in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, a place where they're only allowed to enter the priest. The high priest was only allowed to enter once a year, and they had taken it out to bring it into battle, which was terrible. And this Ark of the Covenant was meant to be a picture of the throne of God in heaven. And as such, the Lord would reveal Himself to His people there in the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat being the, the top of the Ark of the Covenant. He would reveal Himself to His people. He would speak. He would manifest His glory. He would dwell in a special way among His people there. They took it in the battle and they lost it. And now the Ark of the Covenant is in the temple of Dagon. Think of that. Shocking. The invisible God would manifest himself there between the cherubim. And they're thinking, O oh, great Dagon, Dagon, the, the head of the pantheon, 
Yahweh now his servant. But brothers and sisters, they're in for a wake-up call. They're in for a a massive wake-up call. Because we come to verse 3, and this is what it says. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Dagon is lying prostrate before God as if worshiping the Lord. They come in in the morning. You can imagine the priests and the people, they're coming for perhaps their morning worship. They're coming into the temple of Dagon, ready to worship this so-called great God whom they serve, who's given them victory over the Israelites. And they come in and there is Dagon worshiping Yahweh on the ground. It's laughable. That should be the reaction, brothers and sisters. This is hilarious. They have no idea who they're dealing with, do they? You see, they thought that the Lord was like their prisoner of war or their, their, their new deity to add to the, the list of deities that they have working in their favor. Well, that is not the case. And the funny, ironic part of it all is they need to then lift Dagon back up again and put him in place because Dagon needs their help. This idol has fallen over. He's been toppled. So they need to put him back up straight again. And of course, the very fact that that is necessary betrays the reality that Dagon is powerless. He's an impotent idol. He didn't give them victory in battle. No. The reason they won in battle is because the Lord sovereignly orchestrated it. They didn't understand that. The Israelites didn't understand that. But the Lord is making clear His purpose in what's about to happen in Philistia. Dagon is on the ground worshiping the Lord. He is an impotent idol who cannot save and is not deserving of any sort of worship. Now, before we move on to the next verses, it gets even funnier there, but before we move on, let me, uh, let me ask the children to do something they've probably never been asked to do in church before, and maybe never will again, but here's your opportunity. Children, I want you to stick out your tongues for a moment. Can you do that? Stick out your tongues? Okay. I see some tongues. And perhaps the adults as well, we can look for a second down at our knees. This isn't just a Simon Says sort of exercise. Children, adults, those tongues will one day, if not already, confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Those knees will bow down before Jesus Christ, whether now or one day before Him in judgment. 
You see, Dagon, the idol of the Philistines, fell prostrate before the Lord. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, the Scripture says. That includes every child, every adult, every single person in this room, every single person in the world. And that's the sort of thing the Lord would have us understand from this passage. And understand this, for those who refuse to surrender their lives to Christ, to bow before Him voluntarily, willingly, worshiping Him as He deserves to be worshipped, the immortal God, for those who refuse, there is a far more grisly end. See, the text continues, they've put Dagon back in his place. They don't want him lying down prostrate before the Lord. Verse 4 and 5. So they put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. I almost named this sermon Dagon's Decapitation, but that might have been a little bit too edgy. So I chose a different title instead. But that's exactly what happens here. Dagon is slain by the Lord, the Lord of glory. Picture this, they go in again the next morning and they find him and the arms and the head are removed, and there's just maybe a a trunk of wood lying on the ground. And that is what remains of Dagon. This is miraculous. This is supernatural. This cannot be excused as, well, maybe, uh, maybe a wind blew through the temple last night and knocked Dagon over, and that's why he happens to be lying there before the Lord. No, this is a supernatural Judgment of God upon the idol, the idols, the idolatry of the Philistines, and upon all who might worship idols. It's, if you will, fight night in Philistia, and the Lord single handedly is going up against this rival deity who is no match for him, and the Lord. He doesn't pile drive him. He doesn't put him in a full Nelson. No, his, his, his move of choice is the guillotine. And not like WWE, but more like the French. And the scriptures teach us that the Lord is a warrior. After the Exodus, they come out of Egypt... Exodus chapter 15, verse 3 says, The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Isaiah 42 says similarly. 
And so the Philistines may have thought of the Lord as a trophy from battle or a prisoner of war, and they've set him up beside Dagon as if he's a defeated foe or an attendant to Dagon. What they don't understand is what the Lord has actually done is he's infiltrated behind enemy lines like a Trojan horse, perhaps you might say, And he's come right into the heart of their idolatrous society and he's overthrowing it single-handedly from within. The Lord doesn't need an army. He allowed the Israelite army to be defeated and he has come in on his own and he is overthrowing the whole Philistine idolatrous society. He's launching an assault against their gods. And all this shows us vividly a picture of the powerlessness, the impotence of idols. Idols cannot save. Idols do not deserve our trust, our veneration, or our obedience. Jesus says in the Gospels, and speaking of idols of his day and idols of our day, you can't serve both God and money, God and mammon. And brothers and sisters, our cars will rust away, our clothes, as nice as they may be, they may get mothballs in our closet. Our houses will need constant repair as they deteriorate over time. Our money in our bank accounts will inflate. All these things you can't take with you beyond the grave, as well as they may do you in this life they cannot save they are powerless for any eternal good they do not deserve our trust they do not deserve our aspiration or our worship many people they they live for these things try to get as many toys as you might say in this life as you possibly can Try to retire as early as you can with a lot of wealth so that you can go on all the trips and all, have all the pleasure that you want and, and do all the, the things that you want to do. We can't live for these things. It's not to say that money is inherently evil or, or we shouldn't have a car, we shouldn't go on a trip, or we shouldn't uh, retire, or anything like that. But we cannot serve God and money or anything else. God alone deserves our ultimate allegiance, our obedience, our worship, our trust. In terms of other idols, before we, before we move on, the next half of our passage, other idols, you'll see people um, going to a restaurant, going to someone's home, see a little Buddha statue, see dream catchers, people carry good luck charms. These are, these are idols which have no power. They cannot save. We, we should have nothing to do with them. I don't, think, I don't think we do, but I'm giving examples here. Another example, maybe a little bit closer to home, is you'll see people with, with like Mary figurines or crucifixes that they hang uh, in and you know, don't have a cross around your neck or something like that. But there's, there's folks who actually think that, that putting that in their car will protect them from getting in a car accident. It, it, it's powerless to save. The only one who can save is the Lord. 
And with all respect to, to Mary, what the, what the Catholic Church has done with Mary, with believing in her sort of sinless perfection, that she ascended bodily into heaven, didn't die, that she was perpetually a virgin, all these other things that the Catholic Church teaches about Mary has been rightly described as Mariolatry. And the true biblical historic Mary, I'm, I'm sure, would want nothing to do with it. And people will, will pray to Mary, pray to the saints, in a way which is, quite frankly, idolatrous. We should have nothing to do with that. Perhaps to go on a little bit closer to home, and, and I expect that of any application on the subject, this might be the most... Uh, I guess you might say provocative or find the most disagreement. I think, uh, I think when it comes to Christmas, some of our Christmas traditions can become quite unbiblical and can rob the Lord Jesus Christ of His rightful place. The true meaning of Christmas is that God the Son became a man to live and to die for our salvation. And it comes to Christmas time and we, be, we can become so focused on materialism and gifts that we don't even think, we don't even give proper place, central place, even, yes, ex, I think we, we can say exclusive place to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that should have precedence in terms of our thinking, in terms of our celebrations. And, and I'm, I'm not saying this, you know, Bryn and I and our family, we open gifts, we hang wreaths, we build gingerbread houses, we drink eggnog, we do all that fun stuff. I'm not against that sort of stuff, okay? But there's no way we are teaching our children Santa mythology about Santa being the giver of gifts. Because God the Father in heaven is the one from whom every good and perfect gift comes. Not Santa. As if he's somehow timeless and uh, um, you know, omnipotent and knows everything about what you've done and what you haven't done and, and will judge you accordingly. We're not going to teach our children that, no doubt. And uh, some folks have even asked us, they've come over on Christmas time, they wonder why we don't have a Christmas tree and I'm not against decorations or anything, but the reason, the reason we don't have a Christmas tree is because I don't feel right in my conscience about it, quite frankly. Jeremiah chapter 10 says, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. And truth be told, you know, uh, I grew up with a lot of the stuff I've just described. Santa, Christmas tree, 
all the rest, and our families still practice that, and our family would probably practice uh, certainly at least a Christmas tree if it wasn't for me. But, um, you know, I, I ask you, what takes central prominence in your Christmas tradition? What takes central place? I don't want to gather our family around a Christmas tree and put the presents under it as if the presents come from the tree or from Santa who puts them under the tree. And perhaps you may differ from me in terms of some of your conscience on some of this. And I, and I, uh, I can understand and accept that. But if you wake up on Christmas morning and your tree is lying on the ground beside your nativity scene, let me just say that I didn't break into your house and I don't think it was St. Nick either. Okay? Maybe that's a sign you should put it in the fire instead of standing it up again. Okay, we'll move on from there. So we've seen a defeated deity. We've seen Dagon be destroyed by the Lord. We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6 to 12, the remainder of the chapter. And we see in the remaining verses a panicking people. There's a defeated deity, and now we see a panicking people. Verse 6 through 12. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. We see the heavy hand, as the text says, the heavy hand of the Lord in His power 
against the nation of Philistia, afflicted with awful tumors. And as they're afflicted, they try to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant, move it somewhere else, get it to another place, because they're assuming the Lord is a a local deity. If we just move him along somewhere else, well, that will stop stop our, our trouble. And so the Ark bounces around to three of the five major Philistine cities. Started in Ashdod, and then it goes to Gath, and then after that it goes to Ekron. doesn't make its way to all, through all five of the major cities, but it gets through three of them, and it gets progressively worse to the point where there is a deathly panic, and they are at their wit's end. They are just trying to get this to stop. It goes on for some months. I think it says in the next chapter it was something around seven or eight months. So this is going on over the period of months, and people are being afflicted with tumors. And they're running around anxious, terrified in their affliction. A panicking people. They thought the Lord was a local deity. He is showing His glorious supremacy, His unmatched power, and His wrath toward their idolatry and sin. And they're forced to see the truth about that victory in their battle before the Lord was actually judging His people, but now He is judging them. And we can commend them for this at least. At least they can see it rightly, what's going on. At least they can perceive where this is coming from. You know, I was just driving to church and I saw a bumper sticker, and I'm sure you all have seen the same bumper sticker or something there like it. A bumper sticker about cancer and some profanity there with it, which I won't say, of course. You see these sorts of bumper stickers, and it's almost as if they're, they're talking about cancer, as if cancer is a person, a deity, or, or something like that. Cursing cancer. Cancer is not an entity, of course. Some of these folks who have these sorts of bumper stickers, perhaps, they don't believe in God, or maybe they don't know what to do about the suffering and how to make sense of it in light of God's existence. You know, there's folks that will see suffering and they'll say, well, that suffering tells me that God is either not good or he's not in control, or he doesn't exist at all. And they'll go down one of those paths and they'll make an idol of the the true God, the living God. And the truth is that God is good and that God is in control. And in this passage, the Lord brings about these tumors upon this people. He afflicts them. And fortunately, at least, they understand where it's coming from and they understand that they need to humble themselves before God. 
Whether or not this is, you know, a sort of genuine saving thing, I, I, I'm not so convinced about that. But at the very least, they understand this is coming from the Lord, the God of Israel. We must humble ourselves and return the ark to its rightful place. We are in the wrong. They want it to stop. And, you know, brothers and sisters, I think sometimes we can run around panicking for a variety of reasons. We can panic like they did maybe because of our investment portfolio losing value or the housing market becoming unbearable or panic because of the government and their failings or their actions. We can panic because... We want to have a family, we want to have a spouse, and it's not working out the way we wanted. We can panic because our schooling is, is not as successful or our workplace environment isn't as successful as we want it to be. We can panic for all manner of reasons and run around and become anxious and become terrified. And of course, you know, perhaps most pertinent to this passage can get sick, can have a tumor, the cancer can return, we can panic and think, what are we going to do? And the answer is humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Let me read a familiar passage again to you, 1 Peter chapter 5. So, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Just like in this passage, the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. He cares for you. If you, if you get news about a tumor or an illness, or you get news about your financial situation or your family or your work, and you're tempted to panic and run around like the Philistines did with anxiety and terrified. Oh, dear brother and dear sister, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and know Yes, He's in control of your suffering. He has orchestrated it, and yet He cares for you. He cares for you. And it says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That is a promise from our God to every believer who is troubled and who is afflicted. Now these folks in Philistia, I don't think they actually repented. I don't think they actually believed. And it seems to tell us that even in, in its statements about Dagon and their continued idolatry after the fact in verse 5. But for, for those who humble themselves before the Lord in repentance and in faith, 
He'll restore, confirm, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You can be sure of that. And so we've seen a defeated deity. We've seen a panicking people. And in the whole story, what we see is this. We see an immortal God. A glorious God. The God of Israel is not their prisoner of war held captive. He's not their plunder to be displayed. He's not a defeated deity or part of their pantheon. No, the God of Israel is the Lord of all. Bow or be broken. Confess now or cry out on the day of His wrath. He is the immortal God. And He's not, brothers and sisters, an idol like Dagon who in our, in our society has been toppled and requires us to set Him up straight again. I think we can sometimes treat the Lord that way and, and that sort of thinking of that sort of minimization of, of God is itself a form of idolatry in our imaginations. Christians have been influenced by all sorts of church growth books or worldliness or pragmatism. And I think sometimes we see things in our society and we think we gotta, we got to do something to set it right again, to, to, to get back God on His feet, so to speak. We wouldn't say it in those words. But we act like that in some ways. Understand this, that at Pentecost, the church thrived and flourished without a flashy website, without marketing strategies, without homiletical, homiletical skills or highly educated staff or well-dressed parishioners or pretty faces or well-decorated facilities or excellent programs or audiovisual technology that is state-of-the-art. Nothing like that existed at Pentecost when the church thrived under the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the Gospel and the prayers of God's people. See, the Lord does not need us. He goes into Philistia without anyone, without any army, and He single-handedly humbles them and glorifies His name. And we understand that the Lord advances His kingdom through us, yes, through the proclamation of the Gospel, not because He needs us, but because He chooses to use us as His instrument. Though He need not do that, He has been pleased to make us a part of what He does as a grace to us. He is the immortal God. We should humbly serve Him faithfully, with simplicity, with passion, with love, but not with a mindset that somehow He needs us to help Him to set things right, to get involved in the world around in this way or that way with politics or with you know, campaigns and with this or... You know, there's all sorts of things that you can hustle and bustle about in a panic 
thinking you're doing something for the Lord when in fact you're creating an idol in your imagination and minimizing the truth about who He is. He doesn't need us. He is the immortal, invisible God. The truth is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the One who is the radiance of the glory of God, the disciples were shocked. And they might have said, like the Israelites said in chapter 4, the glory has departed from Israel. Not because the ark was captured, but because the Son of God was killed at the hands of sinful men. They might have thought the glory of God has departed, but the truth is, Jesus Christ, the immortal God, rose from the dead. He rose imperishable. He rose for our justification. He rose that one day we might live with Him. Everlasting life with God forever. He is victorious. Single-handedly so. Not over the Philistines, but over all His enemies. Satan, sin, death, any who would stand against Him. Christ now reigns at the Father's right hand, victorious, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, Though Christ was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, He humbled Himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we can say this, brothers and sisters, Friedrich Nietzsche, Karl Marx, Confucius, Aristotle, Socrates, all these dead philosophers, they will one day be confronted with the reality that no, God is not dead, Jesus Christ, God's own Son, is very much alive, risen from the dead and reigning as Lord, and they will give an account before Him for their blasphemies and for their idolatry. And Saint Nick and all the other saints who have been venerated or prayed to or idolized, they too will confess that the Lord is alone worthy. And Joseph Smith and Mary Baker Eddy and all the other cults and all the other perversions of the truth about God, all these things will be brought to account. Buddha will bow down before the Lord of glory. Muhammad and all those who behead Christians will suffer the just recompense under the eternal wrath of God. And indeed, every man, rich or poor, weak or strong, young or old, will be subject 
to the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes again. And so today, if you're not a Christian, might I plead with you, turn from idols to the living God. Turn from living for self or living for money or living for you know, your retirement or your, even your family. Turn from your pursuits. Turn from sinful desires, covetousness. Turn from false religions and lies to the living God and submit yourself, surrender yourself, bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ for He alone is worthy of your worship and your adoration and your obedience and your praise. We understand that those who refuse to prostrate themselves will be slain like Dagon on the day when Christ returns to judge and to make war. And so I plead with you, humble yourself today if you, if you have not yet submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And understand that those who humble themselves, He cares for you. He'll strengthen you. He'll establish you. The afflictions you might experience will come to an end. See, the God of Israel is the Lord of all. We must bow to Him. We must confess His Lordship. He is the immortal God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this profound story of Your work in history. And we ask that indeed You would help us to have humble hearts. And we ask as well, Lord, that all of us, everyone in this room, might confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ, Your Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to conclude with one final song. Crown Him with many crowns. Number 129 in your...